0: welcome to the pin down a detroit pistons podcast i'm your host west davenport from motor city hoops and detroit bad boys And guys blake he's a late scratch again this week he and his wife just had some really incredibly exciting news uh, but i will let him share that next week so you guys go ahead and look forward to that but just like last week the man joining me right now he's not just a fill-in it's sean court managing editor of detroit bad boys sean thank you for hopping on on such short notice
1: yeah thanks for having me always happy to fill in and especially when it's for a good reason i guess although the reason remains mysterious well i don't i don't want to break the news for him right but needless to say
0: there was a scramble drill uh here this afternoon we're recording thursday evening there was a scramble drill probably uh probably late morning early afternoon to to find someone to fill in for blake and we got the best available which is jean corp so thank you again really appreciate it let's just dive right in right we got some breaking news today uh, isaiah stewart for adrian Wojnarowski going to miss at least 10 to 14 days with an ankle sprain so my immediate question to you is you know how might that impact the rotation and just what were your initial reactions uh when, when that news broke
1: well i mean it it hurts because He's really shown as the Pistons' top defender uh, for, you know, down low for an extended period here. He's really helped solidify what little defense the Pistons are able to play. At the same time, he's still being played out of position at power forward. The Pistons have two new players that seem like they can uh, hold their own in the big man positions, at least for a little while, and Muscala, though (laughs) uh, pending, and then uh, Danilo Gallinari, so I feel like the Pistons will be able to cover for this absence and maybe further be able to explore some rotations that work more optimally. At least on offense, defense, I think it's going to hurt, and they'll just have to muddle through.
0: Yeah, I, I actually I had a very similar reaction. My one of my first thoughts was that this opens up the four spot for someone who plays a lot more like a wing which you know, we all agree they probably need to be uh, putting minutes to there at that position. Um, you know, let's talk about some of the impact this might have on the rotation. And obviously' we're, we're still waiting any news on Mike Muscala, who left the game with a head injury. Hopefully, that's not too serious a concussion and that he's going to miss time. Hopefully that doesn't happen. but you know that notwithstanding, who do you think might step up into that four position? Uh, how do you think this impacts the bench lineups? Where do you think Monty Williams goes from here?
1: So, considering what Gallinari has looked like, I don't think they're going to slot him in as the four in a two big man lineup because he doesn't have the the ground he can cover like even Isaiah Stewart could as a second big man. So, I think they want to firmly entrench him probably as the backup center for however long these absences last and then it just opens up another avenue for Kevin Knox to get some extended minutes and shoot the ball and do the kind of weak wing things that this team so sorely lacks. He's not a defender that you can really count on, but he can run the floor, move, cut, shoot. So he can fill in in a way that I think will allow this offense to keep, you know, trending in the right direction for whatever period they're they're using uh or covering up for the lack of both isaiah stewart and muscala so uh
0: if muscala plays and, and he's not going to miss time which you know we don't know if he is or isn't at this point but let, let's assume that he is going to play that backup five spot is probably solidly his uh, it has been since he's arrived do you think Gallinari- pops into the backup four position do they start to shorten up the rotation go more guard heavy I think it gets kind of interesting there off the bench now with Stewart gone
1: yeah I think it I mean this is Gallinari's chance I think for a little bit to to show that he needs some minutes on the floor and whether the team can deal with him at the four position and not just the five I think uh, optimally, they want to use him in short minutes as the backup five as a shooter to really spread the floor. Um, But if these guys are out for a while, or if they're still struggling with being able to put lineups on the floor that can really stretch, if they're getting absolutely murdered on the boards and they just need actual size and they don't want to go to Wiseman at all, then you could see... Golinari at the four, Muscala at the five off the bench in short spurts. But I think, I think the team as a whole is more comfortable with what Muscala can bring regularly, fits the needs, fits the system and can more easily slot in with some of the other existing personnel. And then, you know, next man up would be Golinari and in spot minutes, maybe both of them share the floor.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just, you know, for for our listeners, Gallinari, obviously, in the past, he's been a wing, right? You know, most of his career, he's played at the three, sometimes at the four. But as he's aged, he's kind of shifted down that lineup. So, you know, to you, what makes him more of a five right now? Because I, I do agree with you that he truly should be playing the five in an ideal scenario. So what's kind of been that transition for him and, and how is he <laughs> out on the wing now
1: i mean i i don't want to be uh mean but it's like he's sort of running in quicksand a little bit or running you know in sand he just doesn't move like he used to and so you have to be able to cover for that lack of lateral mobility he can still shoot he's still smart enough to know where he's supposed to be he just can't get there as quickly as he used to so you have to account for that it's easier to account for that with him at the five playing alongside an Isaiah Stewart or alongside a a Knox or an Osor Thompson than it is anyone else. So, I mean, I don't want to see if I see Wiseman Golinari minutes, I'm going to panic. So if they want to, you know, feed Golinari some solid minutes, then it needs to be at the backup five. And then if they get desperate, maybe you can play him with Dern because Dern can at least move and maybe they like cross match who's the defender of the big man down low and who's supposed to run around the perimeter. But that would also concern me greatly.
0: Yeah. So, so this next question I think is, is where it's going to get interesting specifically with Danilo Gallinari. And that's that obviously the Pistons are losing now for at least a couple of weeks, probably their best all around defender. Uh, Obviously Asar Thompson, I would say is a more talented defender, but Isaiah Stewart, you know, what he brings being switchable at the big spot is really valuable, really proven, really consistent. So they're losing that guys need to step up, but how can you mitigate the loss? If you're Monty Williams of that defensive chess piece that you've just lost.
1: I hope he's willing to just live with a little bit more lack of spacing and put a sore Thompson on the floor a lot more because he can be that swiss army knife defender and this team is not going to be a you know top 10 offense and maybe it's worth not being a bottom 30 defense for this stretch if you can get thompson on the floor to give him the hardest defensive assignment and just run, try and get, try to manufacture offense with him, try and move the ball to get some other players some shots, but it's going to be sort of a pick your poison approach uh, because, you know, the Pistons are already one of the least talented teams in the NBA. And now they're down a couple bodies that were actually playing important roles for them and offered, you know, some stretch. And you can only say that about so many guys in the lineup. So, you know, if, if this team wants to, down the stretch of a game, get some stops, it needs to find ways to get Thompson on the floor while Isaiah Stewart is out. Because there's nobody else they can ask to step up in that way and trust it at all. You can't ask Bogdanovich to do it. You can't ask Burks to do it. Cade Cunningham is inconsistent. Though I have liked what I've seen defensively a little bit lately. Jay Nivey's the same way. He's He can make plays sporadically, but... He's still prone to mistakes or prone to sort of getting exploited. So Asur is the guy that can cover that up, that can help his teammates who are lesser defenders and kind of fill in the gaps when they can't. And it's just how can I build an offense with Asur Thompson on the floor so that Cade can still get his and IOE can still get his? It's it's not going to be an easy problem to solve, but he can't just... Pin Thompson on the bench and expect the team to stop anybody at this point.
0: No, I definitely agree. In the closing minutes, right, you, you're going to need a stopper, and he's the only one you've got. You you almost you have to. Your your card's kind of up on the up on the table. Everyone can see it. There's no there's no you know sneaky strategic move that you can make here. If you need to stop, you need to start Thompson on the floor. Uh, where I start to get really concerned with with the defense, at least as far as losing Isaiah Stewart goes, is if Mike Muscala plays, I I do kind of expect him to share the floor a little bit with Danilo Gallinari, and that is not something I want to see, just to put that plainly. I mean, that's two guys that just can't move. You, you said it. They're not laterally gifted. They're not good defenders by any means. They do get to the right spots. They tend to get there a second or two late. Now, there's value in them being in the right spots. I think we see it pretty frequently with Gallinari in particular. He is 10 times out of 10 going to dig on the wing if a guy is driving right past his nose. He's not going to steal the ball, but he'll at least like have an arm in the way, and that's been very helpful. Uh, so I, I almost wonder, is there an argument to start God, start Gallinari at the 4 next to Durin if you're watching on YouTube, we're both grimacing because this is not an easy thing. But offensively, he can still dribble the basketball, which is really what had been limiting Isaiah Stewart, right, at the four. So he can shoot. He can dribble. Offensively, you could probably get away with it. And defensively, if you're assuming he's going to play, I would much rather see his limited minutes be next to Duran than Muscala. Um, maybe there are ways you could stagger this, too.
1: I mean, I want to see them on the floor together exclusively against bench lineups, because I think that is likely when you're able, you're going to be able to live with their deficiencies as far as lateral quickness. But, you know, if we're really talking about wanting to get somebody that can move a little, shoot a little, knows how to play a little defense, and we're talking about end of games, the question then becomes even with uh, Stewart out like is let's say Muscala comes back from his concussion pretty quickly is it Muscala on the floor at the five and then that allows you to play Asar Thompson at the four with your veterans like there are there are yeah. things that are have not been tried yet that can be fiddled with as the Pistons try and figure out how to close one of these games because they're They're in games more often. They're less of a horror show for all four quarters, but they just don't have the personnel to close because, you know, closing time is usually Bogdanovich. You know, if they go full starting lineup, Ivy, Cunningham, Durin, and that's not the defense you want to put up on the floor. So like, I, I hope that Monty Williams becomes more comfortable with closing games with different personnel players who are effectively impacting the game regularly or on the night and not just uh, gifting everything to those starting guys, because during his developing, I you see growth in his game offensively. You might see some regression in his defense. That's a little concerning. That doesn't mean that he should get zero minutes and that doesn't mean he's not going to continue to get enough minutes to continue developing. But I don't know if he, you don't need him to close every game and say, that's the only way you're not stunting his development. Like if it's crunch time and there's three minutes left and I see Mike Muscala on the floor instead of Durin as a defensive replacement, I'm not going to get mad. And I, I wish the Pistons would be a little more willing to go to their guys. They know can defend, especially if they're really desperate to have Bogdanovich on the floor and and a Burks or somebody like that, because you're giving away so much defensively by having their offense on the floor that you have to be willing to try some things to to cover that gap.
0: Yeah. So you just brought up a few of the young guys, three out of the the four core four guys. We're going to play a little bit of a game here, just pros and cons with each of these core four. So that's Kate Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, and Jalen Durant. And this is just going to be based on what you and I have both seen during this season to this point. So Give me a few pros, then a few cons. And if you got any bigger takeaways off of that, you know, we we can talk about that as well. But since we were just hitting on Jalen Dern a little bit, let's start there. What are some pros that you've seen from him this season, um, just developmentally?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, the athleticism jumps off the screen and allows his rebounding ability is, as much as he struggles as a defender, rebounding is a part of defense because you want to limit the opponent to one shot. I think that's that's sort of the swing skill between him and Isaiah Stewart is his superior rebounding in size really helps. Um, you're seeing him more comfortable with the ball in his hand, a little too comfortable <laughs> as the season starts getting away from the Pistons more and more and he feels liberated to try new things. But when he's not trying to, play himself into a pull-up jumper he's actually doing a lot of good smart things in moving with the ball in his hand toward the rim he's still a rim running type player but he's finding more and more ways to get there he's not as reliant on a lob or an assist from a teammate he's able to take the ball and sort of the high post and figure out a way to use his sort of uh, shimmy and athleticism to get a good look at the rim so I've really liked what I've seen there. We've seen some growth in his game as a passer. He's still making too many mistakes where he's making passes he shouldn't be making, but he's also making really high quality, difficult looks. So it's just about learning where the line is and what's a good pass and what's not. Because you want to see him develop as a secondary facilitator, as a big man. That really helps when you're not a shooter. And so I think that's really important to Durant's game so those are like the big takeaways i have for Duran. is just ultra efficient rim pressure big that's expanding his game to get to the rim in a more creative variety of ways sometimes self-creating that's really important that passing is really important that rebounding is really important so i think that's why he's one of those core guys that you're hoping as he develops as a defender becomes a real linchpin to build around
0: so you, you took uh, the the few pros that, I, that I'd written down as well. You know, I talked about the athleticism, the lob threat. He's great there. Uh, he's much better as a ball handler than I had expected, which you mentioned. Um, and, and just, you know, the size and the rebounding. So let's dive into the cons then. What have you seen from him this year that, you know, maybe he needs to work on or just in general hasn't been good at yet?
1: Yeah, it's all about defense. You can't. You can't be a big, a team invest in and not be a plus defender because then like, what's the point? You have to be an an optimal two-way threat at the center position to make any sense to pay, you know, 25, $30 million. And Duren is not that defender yet. Now he's still super young. That caveat aside, he needs to get more aware defensively. He needs to lock in defensively. He needs to you know, get down the floor quicker and be able to survey the floor to know where his assignment is because the Pistons, as a rule, and Duran's a big part of this, they give up way too many transition opportunities because they just don't get back fast enough and they don't recover quick enough. And, you know, that's, there's no reason that somebody with that much bounce should be behind any play. If he's locked in, he should be, in front of everything i don't attribute that to laziness i think some people are a little too quick to say somebody's lazy or disinterested i think it's just a general growth curve where it's awareness and it's it's knowing what he has to do to be in the play every time and that comes with reps and that comes with hard coaching and that comes with him wanting to be great on that end i want him to want to be great as a defender because I think he has the tools to be, you know, much better than he is as a defender. Right now he's not good enough, just straight up.
0: Well, he definitely has the tools. And I think you're absolutely right to say that it's not a a laziness or a motor thing. I mean, I think the the motor issue pops up occasionally, but it it's more the like, you know, hustling back on defense than than anything within the play, right? So I, I would say, you know, for for me, I do Question his processing a little bit. Um, You know, most of this is based on his defense. He doesn't seem to be reading a step ahead of what's coming at him, which you really wish he were doing because he's so athletic and he can jump out of the gym and he has great timing, but he's still not a good shot blocker. Right. So I I wonder what his level of processing is. And that does get backed up a little bit on offense. You, You mentioned some of the passes that he makes, he does throw quite a few that he you just, you truly shouldn't be even uh, attempting. There, there were a few uh, the, this past week where he thought someone was going to cut and in, in no world could you have argued that that player should have cut. You know, it's it's not like he was seeing something there that the other guy wasn't. It was that the other guy correctly saw nothing was there and duran didn't. So, so those, those things do worry me a little bit, especially like you said, you you need a guy to be a a two-way threat at at that five position um the the one other thing i'll I'll mention and i I don't even know if this is truly a negative or not he doesn't jump as high on his drives you know like he on those isos on the ball handling stuff that he'll do from the elbow you know you rarely see him like explode up to the rim it's usually getting contact and you know powering through but but using his touch more more so than 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 his uh his ups which I don't, like I said, I don't know what to take from that, but I've noticed it and I feel it's notable. It's kind of unusual for a guy that athletic.
1: Yeah. And one thing I, I didn't mention, maybe I should, cause there's been stretches where it's been really impressive is his free throw shooting. The forms always look good. And, and for long stretches, it's really translated into a lot of, a lot of consecutive makes or a lot of high percentage stretches for his season. There's some, you know, off, Times And maybe that's just, you know, regressing to the mean a little bit, but I do think he's trending in a really positive direction as a free throw shooter. And with that explosion and willingness to get to the rim, if he can learn how to generate some consistent fouls and convert at a 75% or higher rate, that's like, that is a real nice sweet spot for your big man as a reliable offensive weapon.
0: All right. So we, we were planning to go through all four of these guys, but we're already 20 minutes and we haven't hit on some questions. So I'm calling an audible. Let's hit on some of our live and pre-submitted questions. And if we got time at the end, we'll, we'll circle back into, you know, Sar Thompson, Jaden Ivey, Cade Cunningham uh, and, and their pros and cons for this year. So uh, here is the first one. This is from the DBB comments. This was a fella. Uh, asks what are the differences in offense with Cade and without how do you see Cade and Ivy working best together and do you have a play that you might draw up to get one of those guys open in, in a bucket
1: I certainly don't have a play I leave that to the professionals but uh I think that it's it's a mentality thing within the offense and it's it's an accountability moment, I think, for the coaching staff more than anything. I understand wanting to put the ball in Cade's hands because he's your best player. He creates so much, but I think it's really incumbent on the coaching staff to not let it be that comfort blanket of, okay, we're in crunch time. It's time to just give the Cade the ball and let him cook on his own and everybody can stand around and react to what's happening. Like, no, you got to... You have to be more creative than that. And we're not seeing much creativity from the Pistons and late game situations, which is really unfortunate because sometimes they really do a lot of interesting things offensively, especially now that they have some stretch bigs that are giving some players some good looks. Um, so I think the difference with Cade and without is just the fact that the ball moves a lot more when Cade's out of the lineup. And that's because the team Prefers that slow Cade probing style. I think they they slide into that too much. They should really vary that look with giving either more movement around Cade to make some you know prescribed plays or uh, handing the ball to Jaden more as a one B in the same offense alongside Cade and turning Cade into a potential uh, spot up threat or somebody who can kind of find the gap in the defense and you know, get the ball in a mid-range opportunity. Um, When Cade is off the floor, everybody's moving around. Everybody's flying around. Uh, Sadly, Jaden is prone to some mistakes because he's flying and everyone else is flying. And sometimes these players don't know where each other is supposed to be or they don't see the defender willingly taking a uh, outlet pass or, you know, a kick out pass. Uh, so they're prone to some turnovers, but it's nice to see everybody moving and the ball really kind of touching everyone's hands when Cade is off the floor. And I think there's no reason that they can't have that when Cade's on the floor, too. It's just it takes some more creativity and more discipline on everybody's part.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. And I think it, it's a great call to, to not totally put it on you know the ball handler there. There is a lot of standing and watching. I mean, guys have opportunities to cut, and and early on in the season, right? Asar Thompson made use of this quite a bit. Cade looks for cutters, so so it's not necessarily that you know Cade's just telling everybody to get out of the way, or at least we can't prove that he is or he isn't. What what we do know is that unless your name's Boyan Bogdanovich, you're really not running off too many actions right now if, if Cade's holding the basketball. So I I, I totally agree. That's got to change. Uh, moving forward, especially as you try to integrate more Jaden Ivey uh, a- alongside Cade Cunningham here uh, in the near, hopefully near future. So along those lines, how do you see those two working best together? Is there a specific you know, ball handling split that you'd like to see, maybe a few actions you'd like to see ran for, for one or the other? How, how would you best utilize uh, these two guys on the court at the same time?
1: I mean, I think that for me, Cade works pretty well in all circumstances, or at least Cade is going to be able to do what he's good at. And, you know, you hope it increases on a path towards being a more efficient, reliable weapon. But it's not like too many teams have an easy time taking away his game. So as far as what I want to survey, it's really optimally exploiting the advantages that Jay ivy has and just leaning on it so when when Nivey ivy has an advantage which he has so often as you know that burst and an athletic uh cutter and that athletic you know off-ball player just give him the ball or create opportunities for him to get looks and to get downhill put the ball in his hands more when he has that optimal matchup because he's really good at creating for himself and creating opportunities for others. And he's actually, I would say, I have no evidence to back this up completely anecdotal. He's best as a point guard and a passer when he's working with a big man, as opposed to trying to kick out to shooters. So if he finds a rhythm with a big, or you see a big man that can exploit his own matchup, like I want Jaden Ivey cooking in that spot and leaning less heavily on Cade's, you know, more prodding, probing, uh, playmaking in that in that case.
0: So the only thing I, I would add on onto this because I do I do agree with you, you know, try to get him in more situations where he can take advantage of his, you know, God-given gifts right right out on the court. So um, the only thing I would add is that. You know, a ball screen or an isolation isn't the only way to get a guy get you know downhill or or past the guy in front of him, right? If you if you want to create advantageous spots for Jaden Ivey, the one thing I wish they would do more often is run him off a series of off-ball screens, right? You you see the Warriors do this with Klay Thompson. Now, of course, Clay Thompson is running to go shoot a three, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. If he's coming off a screen low on the wing, moving up towards the top of the key. They've they've done this a few times. He creates so much space between that screen and the guy trailing him because he's so fast. And you've immediately created a five on four because the guy that's defending Jaden is behind the play. So like you don't need to just call ISO Jaden or pick and roll for Jaden. Like you could, it would be incredible. If you would have a pick and roll type action for Cade on the strong side and some sort of lifting action for Jaden Ivey on the weak side, and you just let Cade pick, who's got the better chance to get to the rim on that play? Because the other thing I think with Jaden Ivey that bears mentioning is, you know, the more he dribbles, the worse it looks. If he gets those isolations where he takes 10 to 15 dribbles, like it might be a problem. So Keeping him out of those spots, while also letting him initiate more frequently, to me, I, I think that really should be a priority. So that's your quick hitters, getting him downhill fast, you know, DHOs, off-ball screens, um, motion into a pick and roll, things like that. So that that's how I'd like to see the the two of them used. Let let Cade make the initial decision, and if Ivy's got the advantage, let him make the decisions after that. And, you know, that's not new. Uh, A lot of teams do that with multiple ball handlers. So I'm not reinventing the wheel here by any means, but I think it'd be a lot of fun just based on how athletic he is.
1: And one thing I'd say as far as, like, designing an offensive set around both of them is that one of the advantages that Jaden Ivey has is that he can get around his defender or a defender without the need of a screen so you don't have to put another guy in another position to set up a play just for Jaden you can just find a way to get Jaden Ivy in a little bit of space and that's all he needs to get through his man around his man and get to the rim because you know one of the biggest uh you know benefits or or growth areas for Jaden Ivy this year has been his really really strong growth as a scorer at the rim which was a struggle for him last year despite his athleticism he's really figured out how to translate that athleticism into high efficiency scoring at the rim so just get him an opportunity to get the ball in space and get to that rim good things tend to happen and we want more good things for the pistons and less bad things whenever possible
0: Yes, please. More good things, less bad things. That would be wonderful. Uh, this next question here, this is actually two questions, but they're both talking about the same thing. We're talking about the offseason. Uh, Camille called me out. He said I rated the offseason at a 7 out of 10, which I did at the time. I was wrong, but he asked if I feel the same way now. Uh, and then Mr. Jones asks, uh, he says that the offseason would have been fine if young players developed like they should have. You know, Do we agree with that statement, or are we still blaming peripheral factors? My question to you Sean is where were you on the off season right when we were starting training camp versus now uh with hindsight being 2020
1: Well I I don't take many victory laps but I will say I had this team pegged exactly before the season because I was horrified by the off season I felt like they did nothing to appreciably improve the roster. And they were exclusively banking on internal improvements in ways that could not be trusted or verified or anything close to a sure thing. And they had no backup plans for when and if that didn't work out. So this team was sort of a horror show from the beginning. Uh, A lot of that is because the entire apparatus of this rebuild is banking so much on, get your young guys to build around, expect on internal improvement. And when they're ready to take the next step, we'll have a bazillion dollars to spend on all the finishing pieces that turn us into a title team. Well, that's all well and good, except for when Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duren are all mediocre at best defenders and sometimes quite poor. And then the supplemental pieces that you've put around them are no defense shooters. So it's just an absolute horror show as far as team building. And then, you know, I love the pick of a sore Thompson in the draft. That's well-documented. I still think it was the right pick to make, but he can't shoot. And so you have to build around that deficiency as he grows. Jalen Duren is not a shooter, nor should you expect him to be, uh, Jane Ivey doesn't have a reliable three point shot. Cade Cunningham doesn't have a reliable three point shot yet. So what did you expect to happen? If you're going to put them all on the floor, you can't just say you're going to assign Joe Harris and that's going to solve everybody's problems because he can only play so many minutes and he's limited defensively. So like the whole, the whole team is a pick your poison of which deficiencies you want to live with instead of, how do we put a good team on the floor on a consistent basis? So yes, it's because these young guys didn't turn into two-way players that were positives on both ends, but like nobody should have expected that. If it would have happened, great. Trey Weaver would not be on the hot seat, but it it did not happen that way, and I didn't expect it to happen that way
0: yeah so so the point that you made about the deficiencies uh that is where i vastly overlooked uh the potential issue that that would cause uh even back at the time like in in the moment i i can remember talking repeatedly saying well you know you could put out a lineup that can shoot or you could put up a lineup that can defend but you can't necessarily do both so what do you want to prioritize when really the question should have been so what are we doing here right because you need both of those things so i I think for me for whatever reason uh i I did not make that leap at the time i should have and i do think i probably overvalued the impact of kate cunningham returning uh to full health because you know guess what he he didn't at the start of the season he was still rusty he 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 didn't look like the same guy as when he left which you know i kind of expected he would he does now and he did during that stretch where you know, he had multiple 40-point games, but right at the beginning, no, no, he didn't. It took some time. So uh, for me, at least, I, I think those are some things that I very much overlooked and, and overvalued yeah. coming in.
1: And I would say my biggest miss coming into this season that has really reared its head and caused so many problems is just the absolute horror show of the amount of turnovers this team generates on a nightly basis. I mean, I knew J or Cade Cunningham was a high turnover player, but just as a team, this they sabotage themselves so consistently as a defensive team because they're giving up so many turnovers and creating so many easy opportunities for the opposing team and it's just like until this team can figure out its turnover issue on a consistent basis They're going to be a bottom three offense and a bottom three defense. If they could become a, you know, 10, 11 turnover team, then you might see some real positive momentum on the offensive end. And you might see, you know, instead of the 29th ranked defense, you could see, I don't know, the 22nd ranked defense. And that would be a huge improvement. They would win so many more games if they just cut these turnovers that seem so stupid and ill-advised and unforced errors and, and just absolutely it's it's been the most frustrating part of being a consistent watcher of the Pistons you know there's so much to choose from as far as how this season is going wrong but the only thing that makes it difficult for me to watch the games and this was true last night against Cleveland I hate seeing this team turn over the ball so much it just makes me want to turn away and never look back because it's just so frustrating as a viewer.
0: Oh, and the, the worst part about the turnovers, right? Especially the other night against Cleveland. Cade Cunningham didn't turn the ball over. You know, it was Bojan Bogdanovich. It, it was Alec Burks. It, it was veterans. Uh, Monte Morris, Mr. Assist to Turnover Ratio. I think he had a couple. Like, it's guys that you you don't expect at this point to be turning the ball over as much as they do. But they are. It's like a virus. It's just gone through the entire
1: game. Yeah, I mean, they they say that, you know, missing free throws is contagious in basketball. And I think maybe we don't give enough credit to the fact that maybe turnover issues are contagious, too, because so many players are just like, okay, I got it. I'm I'm a veteran. I know what to do with the ball. I will solve this problem for my team. I'll put it on my shoulders and they can't get it done and it's a turnover and they put too much pressure on themselves or they see the you know momentum building against them or the turnovers start to rack up and the windows get smaller and the decisions become you know half a second later than they would have otherwise and it just keeps building on itself it's a true true horror show
0: all right, let's hop on to this next one here from Team Raff in the DBB comments. Uh, he says, Cade Cunningham is featured prominently in the team's best lineups, uh, but his name is also found in the team's worst lineups. So the question then is to you, is Cade Cunningham more of a ceiling raiser or a floor raiser right now? Because you could conceivably make an argument for both.
1: I mean, the roster is so deficient that there's no way to tell where the answer is. And that's an indictment on Troy Weaver and the organization in and of itself. They just didn't put the pieces in place to make a good assessment of where Cade is as a player. Now, in some ways, Cade has transcended those deficiencies and and done a lot on his own to really improve his game. But like... I've been excited about the addition of Gallinari and Muscala to a degree that is unhealthy because of how deficient the roster was beforehand. And now I'm just desperate to see an extended stretch with those two players as options, plus a generally healthy roster otherwise. So I can see how Kate operates with a stretch big on the floor and maybe a sore Thompson as a cutter, or maybe an actual power forward that can, you know, play extended minutes and hold up a little bit on defense. Like we just, we have none of that because the roster is so fundamentally deficient in so many key areas. I don't know how you judge any of these players.
0: I I completely agree. I was going to say the exact same thing. So I'll be quick and then we'll hop onto the next question, but yeah, a- absolutely. It is impossible to judge Cade Cunningham, a- at least in, in in as far as that question goes. Right? Is he a ceiling raiser? Is he a floor raiser? Like you, you can judge how well he's been playing. He's been playing very well. You're you're right. He's kind of transcended the terrible, you know, roster context around him. But that that complete lack of just players who can dribble, pass, and shoot. You know all three skills on offense and then also our competent defenders like they they don't have those guys and that is a massive detriment to to this roster so yeah Cade Cunningham plays the most and therefore he's in good lineups and bad lineups and that's just kind of the reality we're going to have to deal with and, and figure out here as we walk into a fairly large extension that he's going to command
1: if, if I had to choose one of those, I would say it's probably that he's a ceiling raiser. Because when you look at the best lineups, if you left Cade Cunningham's name off of a list and you saw the other four players, anyone else in the NBA would be like, that's your best lineup? Jesus, what a horror show. And then you look at the, you know, worst lineups for the Pistons and you say, well, of course that's your worst lineup. You're playing Isaiah Livers and a Sword Thompson and Killian Hayes. At the same time and expecting anything good to happen, like what else could be happening? So it's just the roster context is so terrible.
0: So the question here is from Mathus. Uh he is from Brazil, tuning in from Brazil. So that's pretty sweet. Shout out to Pistons fans in Brazil. That's that's awesome. Uh, but he would like to trade for Obi Toppin, for example, potentially Obi Toppin and Buddy Healed for Bojan Bogdanovich and Killian Hayes. Probably a bit of an overpay there on the Pacers part, but regardless, what would you think about Obi Toppin as a trade candidate here for the Detroit Pistons?
1: I mean, I don't know his defensive game well enough. My recollection is that it's not too great. I think he's a very low volume three-point shooter, and then otherwise he basically plays as a five considering the roster construction issues the Pistons have I'm not quite sure that's like the sweet spot of what they should be looking for but I mean they're so they're so in need of power forwards is Obi Top a power forward or is he yet another center playing out of position as a small ball five that's masquerading as a four I just haven't watched enough of his games outside of New York to know that for sure but Definitely wouldn't be the first person I went to, but you know, it's not that I hate his game. I'm just not sure he fits specifically with what the Pistons' uh, lineup needs.
0: Yeah, I, I'd echo you. I, I see what the idea would be uh, with Obi Toppin. Right? I mean, he's a great rim runner. He's very athletic. Uh, he's very good in transition, and he can't shoot. I feel like he does run into some of the Isaiah Stewart issues though, in that he's not a guy that you really trust to put the ball on the floor uh, at any point on offense. You know, he's got a little bit of a post game, but from the perimeter, not so much. And and that would, that would hold me back. I do primarily view him as a very athletic, um, but poor defending and, and undersized rim runner at the five spot. So just on that fit, I would probably pass, but you know, I, I do see uh what you're going for there uh with with Obi Top and uh this next question here is from KCP for three and it's through on uh, in the DBP comments. Shout out to you, man. Love all the questions every week. Uh he says if this team doesn't take a big swing via trade, meaning one of the core four being moved, which non-marquee free agents could potentially move the needle? Uh, and would that do anything outside of, you know, fostering internal growth?
1: Man, I, I just haven't refreshed my memory enough on the free agency class. It just seems so dire and I just don't anticipate the Pistons being a top two, three, four team on any free agents list. So I'm not sure where like their version of the Jeremy Grant deal from 2020 comes from. So I don't anticipate any big names. I think if anything, it's going to be some role players. Now, that being said, look at the positive impact having functional NBA players and functional might be doing a lot of heavy lifting here in Mike Muscala and Danilo Gallinari. Like they were not players that were getting consistent minutes on Washington's lineup. And I think for decent enough reasons, and yet they've been an injection of just spacing and competency and knowing what to do with the ball and playing some decent defense from muscala that it does wonders for how you're able to operate as a team so the pistons i don't see a path to them being a 40 win team next year that's just not going to happen but they can use this uh, this You know uh money they have in free agency whatever chunk of it they use in free agency compared to trades and they can sign a couple role-playing players to fit into their rotation pretty easily because they have so many spots they need to improve on sort of like a functional defensive and offensive level
0: so uh here here are a couple names at least for me that i was looking at um coming into the offseason Gordon Hayward, I think he could be interesting as a wing who is a competent defender and a a good enough ball mover and shooter offensively. Um, He's not a marquee guy, so I I could see him really filling in a role, potentially even next to Bojan Bogdanovic. I think he could probably make that work, even though it wouldn't be ideal on the defensive end. Uh, The other name that I think could be worthwhile watching would be actually Markel Fultz. Obviously, he's not a fantastic shooter. But very good athlete off the bench at either guard spot. You could, if you retain uh, Monte Morris, you could probably play him at the two. You could play him next to Marcus Sasser uh, if Morris and Burks are both gone. He would be a more expensive backup. Um, but he is a very good defender and a very good playmaker. And again, he's actually a threat to score. So it's in, in some ways, it's almost like an idealized version of Killian Hayes. Big athletic guard that actually does look to score the ball is a very good passer, uh, and, and is a very good defender. So I, I think Markel Fultz could help and, you know, he would not be a superstar free agent signing, uh, at this point in his career. So th- those would be my two names that, right now.
1: I'm just so allergic to non-shooters as additions, but at the yeah. same time, like just bring me somebody who can defend on the wing, please. Like, I am so desperate to see some defense in the Pistons lineup. So uh, that is, that's the frame I will be operating going into the offseason with. How can I get some defense in this lineup in regular rotation or or in the starting lineup?
0: And uh, with with Fultz in particular, he, he hasn't proved he's the low 30s now. So, you know, not a good shooter, but also better than Killian Hayes. There, uh, at least uh, as far as percentages go. Anyway, you know, no shade. Anyway, let's uh, let's jump into this next one from at HR Morose on Twitter. Uh, this is a draft question, so he's asking for your top three favorite draft prospects to watch right now, and potentially one name to avoid.
1: Yeah, the. I mean, it's. I'm no draft expert. I leave that to others. I leave that to Bryce Simon, our good friend, who's the true expert in this field. Uh, But I sort of, I listen for keywords and I hear things that sort of lock me into guys to at least be intrigued by and research, you know, a little further down the line. So the one name that's been popping out to me as somebody who can really maybe move the needle on this team is a French player. Forgive me if I'm saying this name wrong. I believe it's Uh, Zachary Rizache. Uh, Hopefully that's at least 80% of the way there. The thing that intrigues me in this, I feel like he is, um, he's akin to maybe as a non-draft expert, full caveat, like, it, within his optimal future and optimal role, thinking about a guy like Keegan Murray, who was picked one spot in front of Jaden Ivey. And if you think as Pistons fans, that big conversation between Keegan Murray, Murray and Jaden Ivey at the time was like, is Keegan's ceiling high enough? Is he anything more than a complimentary player? Can you really build a team around him? Is he a. Is he an alpha offensive player? And the answer was no. So that's that's told a lot of people, I don't want Keegan Murray. Well, look at how his game has grown in Sacramento. Look at the fundamental role he plays in Sacramento as a shooter and a defender. I think that's similar to what you hear about Riza Shea, which is just like he's one of the best shooting wings in the class, probably the best shooting wing in the class, maybe a perfect complementary player. Not just a spot-up guy, but a guy who can get his shot off in a number of ways, which is really intriguing. And at least what I'm seeing is uh, he projects as a decent defend- defensive player. I don't need like you know an all-defense type player. I need a plus defender from that spot if he's also going to be one of the best wing shooters in the class. So that is a guy who just fits such a fundamentally perfect role with the Pistons. And then that's a guy that can also maybe unlock a Soar Thompson as somebody who can share the floor with him down the line or, you know, just build that lineup out in ways that make sense. So that has been really exciting uh, to see develop. Alexander Saar, I'm afraid, as, you know, sort of the consensus, quote unquote, top of this relatively weak draft. He just seems like a center to me, which means that it, un- it opens a can of worms about what do you do with Jalen Duran if you decide that Saar is your pick, because it means you got to move Duran. I don't want to see them try and work both of them together. Maybe it means you move Duran and that's the right call. Maybe it means you try and trade the pick one or two spots and still get a different player, or you get a really nice player and a pick a little further down the draft. As far as a player that scares the heck out of me, I'm going to say Ron Holland out of the G league, just because he's like the classic Pistons pick of, he's got all the tools except for a shot that you can't trust. So as long as he becomes a shooter, he's an all NBA player. Oh wait, what if he never becomes a shooter like Stanley Johnson or like uh, Seku or like Killian, then he fundamentally can't work as an offensive player. So that just it scares me away, even as intriguing and as high as scouts are on him.
0: The only name I would add to the uh the players to watch, I do like Cody Williams, uh kind of a wing out of Colorado, at least so far. Now, now, granted, I think for both of us, right? Neither of us are draft, draft experts, and it's also very early on in the process uh, at this point. So all those caveats said, I like. Cody Williams is all around game. You know, he seems like he could be a pretty solid defender. He's got a good handle on the ball. Uh, he's shooting pretty well, but it's a low volume. So we'll see if that continues. And, you know, just a little fun nugget as he's the brother of OKC's Jalen Williams. So, you know, if, if the family genes are that successful, maybe there's something to mind there. I don't know. Uh, with Alexander Saar, uh, I agree. So I only see him as a five as well. I'm not Sure that there's anything he could do uh, to really change that at, at this point in the season. He just he doesn't have the ball handling uh, skills that you'd want to see out of a wing, which the four position is. So you know he could handle it pretty well for a five, but that doesn't scale down. He is kind of in this uh, shot blocking, good size, good body control, could potentially be a dribble pass shoot five kind of player. And actually, there's been one of those guys in the past three drafts, though I'll also caveat by saying each of these three players is was a much better prospect than Saar is at this point, and, but those would be Wemben Yama, Chet Holmgren, and, and Evan Mobley. Um, again, all of those guys are probably an entire class, if not two, above what Saar is as a prospect, but that's kind of the archetype that you're looking at. Um, so I, I do really like him, and research you know three and d wing right that would be an an ideal fit absolutely ideal fit uh one more name too not to like to try and avoid uh nicola top he's just he's giving me killian hayes vibes right now and i just don't i was listen i was one of the biggest killian hayes fans during that draft prospect i really really liked him pre-draft and i don't want to be burned twice so i am i am anti nicola topic
1: (laughs) and i'll just throw out one more name just for fun just for a little chaos if the pistons somehow get better and they somehow don't end up with a top five pick if they're at six or seven if they really want to improve as a defense and if they're really thinking maybe jalen duran's not that guy Maybe they get this year's Walker Kessler and what is it? Klingon. Is that his name? Am I saying that right? Klingon Donovan Klingon. He projects as such a good defensive center that it's kind of like Even me as a person that doesn't like the idea of taking a center, uh, his impact on the floor really stands out.
0: I was petrified that you were about to drop the Zach Eddy name right there. Uh, Cause he's, he's a guy that's starting to get lottery, lottery buzz. I don't personally see it. Uh, he, you know, he can't shoot. He's very laterally slow. He does block shots and he's massive. But oh, I was, when you said this year's Walker Kessler, there was like a moment where I was like big guy, long arms, block shots. Oh no. Zach Eddy was actually a guy I put in the to avoid category. As long as Jalen Durant's on this team, you do not need Zach Eddy at all. There is no spot. Just pass. Uh, Let's hit this one. uh, One more question here and then close it on out. This is from uh, Keep Khan in the DBB comments. Uh, He says, do you agree that Cade, Jaden, Jalen, and Asar are off the trade market or that they should be off the trade market right now, would you want the Pistons to hold on to any other players uh, as well? So basically should the core four be untouchable and regardless, are there any other players that maybe should be untouchable as well?
1: I think untouchable is not the word I would use. I would say they should not be motivated to move them. So in other words, if a deal came along And a team was desperately trying to get one of them for whatever reason. And they really, if it was a clear win for the Pistons, then, okay, you can move probably anyone not named Cade. Although, you know, depending on the deal, who knows. But the Pistons are not in a position where they should say, well, our team's not working. We've totally messed this up. So we have to trade one of our core pieces to really just shake things up or change the calculus of what this team can be, because, you know, they made their bed and they have to sleep in it. And if I want anybody trading one of these core players in a move motivated like that, then it needs to be a new regime. I don't want Troy Weaver trying to paper over his mistakes by selling one of these core players for 50 cents on the dollar and trying to just Will another couple pieces to 20 wins like that is not the team I want to see. That's not the team building approach I want. This team's terrible. It's going to finish with a bottom four record. It could end the season with as few as what, 12 wins, 13 wins. That's the bed they've made and they have to sleep in it. So like then they just have to have some serious serious conversations in the offseason about which of these players is working, which is not, how much of that is a self-inflicted wound of poor roster construction aside from those four players, and then have serious conversations about is Troy Weaver the right person to get another shot at improving this roster? Is Monty Williams the right coach for this roster in this shape in this stage of the rebuild? And if the question, if the answers to those questions are no, they have to be willing to move on from one or both of them.
0: So, so here's the follow-up question I want to ask you then, because we did get this uh, in in the comments a couple of times uh, during the show, but, you know, you look at the core four. Cade, like you said, probably almost untouchable or about as close as you could get on a team that has six wins to being untouchable. So, you know, leave, leave him off. When you're looking at Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, Jalen Duran, you know, what conceivably could be the the trade return that would make you go, okay, maybe we need to look at it as compared to what do you reasonably think they could probably get on the trade market right now, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I think their trade value is low around you know, the table there. So I don't think you're going to get a huge return on any of them because none of them are popping off in a way that's really going to motivate people to buy high. As far as the return, it's, you know, prototypical players that are impacting winning and you can build around, which is like, you know, six, eight players who are good defenders, who can uh, score efficiently. Like they don't have to be household names. They don't have to be, top five picks, but that's the kind of players you make a big move for. And they have to be young and they have to, you have to have confidence. You're going to be able to resign them. So they'll be on the team long-term. Guess what? There's not a lot of those players on the market ever. And there's not a lot of the, there might be none of those players on the market now. And you'd have to trade two or three of the Pistons core to get one of the top, you know, young prospects in the game so like what are we really doing here it's it's more about trying to put this core in a situation where they can grow and succeed and either grow into a long-term role with the pistons or grow into a situation where they've improved their value around the league enough they've shown what they can do they've shown what they can't do and they can be moved for pieces that are more complementary in a in a one-to-one match where both sides are happy with the return. There should be no uh, there's no five-alarm fire that says you have to make a move with one of these guys now. That's not to say I think all four are going to work out in the NBA and they're all going to be all-stars or all-NBA players. It's just it doesn't make sense right now to make that move unless a deal presents itself that's too good to pass up.
0: All right, Sean, we got to wrap this one up. Thank you again uh, for jumping on with such short notice. We really, really appreciate it. I uh, want you to let all the listeners know where they can find your work, um, more, more of your insight.
1: As always, please just visit the website, DetroitBadBoys.com. Read everything we're writing over there. Please subscribe to the podcast. If you're not already, it really helps us out. We want to grow our audience. Uh, if you want to, talk about the Pistons, write about the Pistons, join the community, hit me up on Twitter. We're always looking for more voices, more perspectives, and trying to uh, share people that are excited and invested in this team because, you know, after 15 years of losing, that can sometimes feel like it's few and far between.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So, Sean, special thank you to you, Uh, Blake and I. We really appreciate the support you've given uh, to this podcast since the the start so so thank you for that and you know shout out to all you guys the listeners for all the great questions and the great talking points that we've had today we'll catch you next week whether that's on your commute or live with us on youtube we can't wait to talk more detroit basketball with you